Welcome to this podcast by The Rocks Church. We hope you find it challenging and inspiring. For more information, visit therocks.church. Well, good morning and happy January to you. My name is Alistair and I, if I've not met you in person, I would love to do so. Now, you might think that's quite a violent way to start the the thing, but we really do feel like there is a chance at the beginning of our uh, year that if we're not careful, we can accidentally light all of the things in our lives on fire and so we are, we are running this series, How Not To Be Your Own Worst Enemy. And as we've been kind of preparing for this, something that has really rattled me is this idea that you and I have an internal dialogue with ourselves all day, every day, for our entire lives. Do you not ever stop to think about how strange this is, that there is a conversation occurring in your head with one other person that's in there? If you've got more than one, you probably need to see somebody. But it is pretty normal for all of us to have this conversation in our brain, right? I mean, it's even stranger for us to think about the idea that we're a self, that we have a personhood, that when you get to know somebody, you're not just learning about the sequences of their DNA strand or what it is that makes them them, you're learning about them as a person, the things that light them up, the things that make them excited. There is something that is weird in the sense that we are different than just what makes us up in terms of our chemistry and our biology. But as I'm thinking about this conversation that's happening in all of our heads, all of our lives, the longer we let that conversation run, I think all of us wind up at the same question. And it's a three-letter word which says, why? Why does this or that happen? Why is the world the way that it is? Why am I the way that I am? And why do I do the things that I do? You and I are trying as best we can to impose reason on what seems to be the random events of life. And as these things happen to us or around us, we do all that we can to impose reason. Ultimately, what you and I do is that we create a narrative. We try to take these seemingly random events that occur and put them in a way that makes more sense. And as we kind of experience life more and the things that happen seem either bigger or maybe even more personal, we are more intentional with the narratives that we make. And in the end, you and I, both of us together, we create and then often abide by our self-imposed narratives. And if you and I are not careful, these narratives are not always correct. And so if we do not pay attention to these narratives, we are on the fast track to becoming our own worst enemies. And the reality is, for all of us in the room, no one exempted whether you follow Jesus or not. We've seen other people, or maybe even ourselves, make decisions, and we think, that is a big mistake. And in fact, we ask a question. We might even ask it of ourselves. We might ask it of someone else. But we say, what were they thinking? We're often going... Look at that. Well, honestly, that decision makes no sense. And then we follow it up with a self-affirming statement, maybe to make ourselves feel better. And we say, I would never. (laughs) What were they thinking? I I would never have made that business decision. I would never have invested in those stocks. I would never have purchased that thing. I would never have married that person, right? You're looking at everyone's lives. But the reality is for all of us, this is you and it's me, we have the potential to make that same level of mistake. And the reason that is really simple is that you have participated in all of your bad decisions. 
No one else has. They might have maybe impacted those decisions or maybe they weighed in on those decisions, but not all of them. Some of them definitely, but not all of them. And so you and I have the responsibility to look at our decisions. Why? Because a single bad decision is always the first step to becoming your own worst enemy. And so we wanted to start off this year with a tool set that we can apply for the whole of 2024 so that we can practice being a friend to ourselves instead of an enemy. And last week you guys had Gordon and he started us off with this concept of preemptive habits. Habits that you and I are pre-deciding now to stop what will happen then. And Gordon's point for us last week was this idea of pay attention to the tension. Whenever we're in the midst of decision making, and we feel that tug inside, we're gonna stop and we're gonna pause and we're gonna pay attention to that tension. Because generally, months or weeks, sometimes even days later, there will be good logical grounding for why we didn't feel ease about the decision that we were making. Because it's very rare that you or I have to sell ourselves on a good decision. And so today, we're gonna take that one step further and we are going to pay attention to our narratives. Can you take a moment for me down memory lane? For some of you, this may not be a memory. It might be right now. But can you remember when you were in high school and what your core narrative was? It was quite simple, right? My parents are dumb and they have no idea what they're doing. For some of you, maybe you're a, a parent of a teenager now and you realize, oh wait, I am dumb and I have no idea what I'm doing, right? The, the narrative kind of turns a little bit. But the reality is, right, there are narratives that you and I are writing today. We may not be writing the teenager narrative, but we are writing narratives. And if we're not critical with the narratives that we're writing, we can actually change the trajectory of our lives. Here's some of the narratives that maybe you or I are writing today. Maybe you are writing a narrative that says, I deserve better. Maybe you're looking at the world around you, the life around you, the job around you, the family around you, and you're saying, I deserve better. Maybe you've even taken that a step further and you're saying, I'm entitled to. Maybe yours is, I should be further along. You're not happy, you're not content with where you're at. You're saying, I should be further along. Maybe your narrative is simply, I'm just not happy. Maybe your narrative is, he should be doing more. He should be nicer to our kids. Maybe your language is, if she loved me, she would do X, Y, Z. If she loved me, she would see what I'm feeling. Maybe your narrative is simply, they don't care. Maybe your narrative is a little bit more negative or a little bit harsh in this. Maybe it's, it just doesn't matter. Nothing matters. What's the point in anything? Maybe your language is, it won't make any difference. Doesn't matter what I try or what I do, there's gonna be zero impact. Maybe your narrative is, I don't do exercise. It's not I can't, it's not I won't, it's just I don't. I don't even know what that language means, right? Maybe your language is simply, I can't. My three-year-old says this often and we're trying to retrain him. It's not that you can't, it's maybe that you need help right now, right? This is a narrative that most of us are saying. Maybe your language is really negative to yourself and you're saying, I'm better than that. Or maybe on the converse, it's really, really prideful and it's, I'm better than them. Or maybe it's just really rude and they're just losers. No one likes them, especially not me, because they're just losers. Maybe your narrative is really antsy to the people around you and you're saying, hey, they don't deserve the things that they have. They don't deserve the life they have. They don't deserve the house they have. They don't deserve the job they have. Maybe it's if they would just try harder, if they would just do more. 
Maybe it's, I can't resist. There's ice cream in the freezer. I, just, I can't. It's not my fault. It's just there. <laughs> Maybe it's something's wrong with me. Maybe it's, I can't live without. Maybe it's simply men. Exclamation point. That's it. That's your whole narrative. Maybe it's women are all. Christians are all. Atheists are all. If my dad had only played catch with me, I would not be in the train wreck that I'm in right now. If my mum hadn't taught me bad eating habits, I wouldn't be where I am right now. Now most of these, when we look at them in the light of day, we go, they're completely irrational. They make no sense. But you and I love to use them, and we use them all the time because narratives create excuses. They allow us to move the control away from ourselves. And so really, they're not actually even excuses. Really, they're justifications. They empower us to avoid the things that we shouldn't really avoid. They empower us to embrace the things that we never should embrace. They fuel pride, they fuel racism, they fuel hatred, and they fuel fear. What's even scarier than that is that you and I actually have very little control over the circumstances around our narrative. And so at this point, we should all be asking the same question, which is what are our narratives actually dependent on? And the scary thing is that it's actually dependent on very little that you and I can control. Realistically, our narratives are dependent on three things. The first is where we are in the world. The second is the way that we experience the world. And then thirdly, it is the way that we were raised in the world. And when you look at these three things, you can see really, really clearly, hey, I actually can't control much or if any of those things. At the end of the day, not many of us chose to grow up where we grew up. And even right now, you might be sitting in an auditorium in Perth, Western Australia, or maybe you're watching online. The likelihood that you fully 100% chose exactly that is highly unlikely. You're here for work, or you're here for family, or you're here for a, a specific type of job. And so the likelihood that you can control where you actually are is pretty slim. Secondly, right? The way that we experience the world, you and I can't control this. For many of us in the room, we were not able to choose whether or not we would have two working eyes, two working ears, a working nose, a working mouth, legs and arms. But there are many people in the world who don't experience the world the same way that you do because of simply the way that they were born. You were morally lucky. And lastly, and all of us know this, you have no control over your family of origin. You have no control over the way that you were parented, the schools that you went to, or the way that you were brought from a baby up until where you are now in our lives. And so this is quite overwhelming. But thankfully, you and I are not the first people in history to have to deal with this reality. In fact, this is what humanity has been battling with for thousands and thousands of years. And so what you and I are going to do today is going to take a quick look at a letter that a guy called Paul wrote to the church of Corinth. Now, contextually, just so you're aware, this letter was written 2,000 years ago, and it's written to Corinth, which is a city that was in western Greece. It was really, really close to Sparta and had a heavy military background. Uh, in fact, some of the core narratives, the core values of the people of Corinth would be this. People are property, 
might makes right, and the gods determine the fate of the individuals. And so for you and me, we might look at these narratives and we go, who on earth would believe those things? But just as these narratives were so ingrained in the people of Corinth, and the opposites generally are ingrained in us, those narratives need to be really harshly looked at. And so Paul writes this letter, and he talks to them about this idea. And what he tries to do is use military-based language to try and meet the people in their context and with where they're at. And this is what he says. He says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. And so this means exactly what it sounds like. Hey, if you are someone who follows Jesus, you might live in the same place as people that don't, but the way in which that you are going to fight looks different. It is simply different. And this is what he says. He says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. And he addresses it. He goes, hey, we're not talking about siege weaponry here. We're not talking about catapults or trebuchets or ballistas. There's a good reason we don't have one out the front of the building, right? Because it's not the weapons that are useful to you or I. So Paul says, he says, he says on the contrary, the weapons that you and I have, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Strongholds being in battle, a place of power, right? Something above the battle that is really difficult to attack, really difficult to take advantage of, and allows you to be in a place where you can kind of control the battle. And what Paul is saying to these guys in Corinth, do you understand warfare, do you not? Well, the tools that we have been given allow us to simply destroy and demolish things that look unassailable. And so what is it that you and I are attacking? Because it's not a physical stronghold. Paul says that we demolish arguments. You might even think of an argument simply as a narrative. And so the weapons that you and I have been gifted are so different to the rest of the world. If we are someone who follows Jesus, the weapons that you and I have been given allow us to wage war on flawed conclusions that are based on false assumptions. I mean, think about this. Let's go back to the teenage example, right? When you were 15, was there anything that you did not know? I'm going to say no, right? There was no way that anyone could speak to you about anything going on in your life, no matter how logical or well thought out, that would be correct. In fact, if you believed something when you were 15, it did not matter whatever was presented to you, you were simply an impenetrable fortress of argumentation. It did not matter. I remember having this argument with my mother. You need to get like 10 to 12 hours of sleep. No, I don't. Four is fine, right? You get to like 25 and you're like, if only I could sleep more than four hours, that would be really good, right? But when you're 15, you're like, no, I'm right. I'm 100% correct. But what's terrifying is that you and I have done the same thing around the narratives that we tell ourselves each and every day. We've actually built a wall around the stories that we're telling ourselves that no one else, and not even God, is allowed to look at. And so Paul goes even further than that. He says, not only do we demolish arguments or narratives, we also demolish every pretension, every bit of prejudice, every kind of preconceived notion, every bit of arrogance, every bit of conceit, any kind of concept that is going to pre-decide something before I've experienced it for myself, we're going to destroy that. And we're actually going to take things on the value that they are. Now, 
we can make the mistake of destroying everything, right? Because there are some good arguments and there are some maybe good pretensions. And so what is it actually the arguments, the pretensions that you and I need to commit to destroy? It's anything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So we look at the wisdom and we look at the discernment of who God is and what he's done. And we look at the life of Jesus and we take the arguments and the narratives and the prejudice that we have inside us and we look at it in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. And we ask ourselves the question, is this argument something that deserves to continue existing or do I need to destroy it? And in fact, he goes even further and he says, we take captive every thought and we make it obedient to Christ. Every single thing that is going through our brain, we're going to monitor it, we're going to look at it, we're going to hold it up to the life of Jesus. And we're going to say, if that does not look like, smell like, taste like Jesus, then that needs to be destroyed in the narrative that I'm telling myself. It's really clear. If we're going to follow Jesus as an active thing, not just admire him, not just respect him, if we're going to follow Jesus, it means reorienting the aspect of our lives that writes our narratives. That's why it's so important for you and for me to read the Gospels often. We have a first-hand biography of the life of Jesus. I mean, think about it, right? Let's say you really respect Barack Obama. So you read his biography. You don't need to know what he did with his life because you can read that on Wikipedia. You want to know how he lived his life. You want to look at the lifestyle of Barack Obama, which is what his biography gives you that Wikipedia does not. And you want to try to emulate that lifestyle because you want a similar level of success. It's the same thing for you and for me. When we read the life of Jesus, we look and we get to see what his life was like. I mean, let's let's just take one interaction here. It's between Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, and Jesus himself. Philip says this, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. That's a great statement. Philip is saying, hey, if we can just catch a glimpse of who God is, that's enough. I don't need anything more from you, Lord. I just need to see what God looks like. But look at what Jesus says. He says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time. Philip walked in Jesus' pocket for three years, in the flesh, in his person. And he still missed this. And for you and for me today, imagine how much harder it is, 2,000 years removed, reading a story in a book. You and I have no doubt missed this as well. Look at Jesus. He says... Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And so for you today, I don't know whether or not you've been following Jesus for 55 years or you don't care for him at all. But if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what his character is, what his attitude is towards you, towards the people around you, to our city, to the world, you need to read the life of Jesus. Because Jesus is the revelation of what God looks like. I mean, let's look at another situation here. This is Jesus again. He's saying... When, uh, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. If you want to know what God is like, it's not a God that is blaming or aggressive. In fact, he's shining lights on things. And the crazy thing is that you and I get to partner with God to do that. Here in little Perth, Western Australia, possibly the most isolated city in the world, you and I get to shine light in partnership with Jesus. Because the reality is, it's unclear, I mean, it's clear as day, that the world is broken. But this is the thing, God redeems broken things. God is not looking at the broken pieces of your life, of my life, of our city, 
and going, hey, who dropped this? And why did you drop this? No, he's simply shining a light on it, redeeming it, taking it from death to life and making it beautiful again. Because God is in the business of engaging with broken things, not avoiding them and not trying to get away from them. I mean, Jesus flips the narratives of so much of our culture, right? The more you read him, the more overwhelming it becomes. Something that I think Jesus makes really clear is like, if you're full of yourself, ultimately you'll be left empty. If every narrative that you are writing internally is about how you're not good enough or not enough or not much or maybe too good, um, way better than everyone else, at the end of the day, if you become self-obsessed, where do you end up landing? Well, you end up in a place where you are completely empty, even though you're trying to feel yourself so much. Hey, I'm good. I'm strong enough. I can do it. I'm positive. You end up in a place where you're completely empty, but emptying yourself actually makes you full. But we can't see what this looks like unless we read the life of Jesus. And so let's hear what Jesus has to say from himself. He says this in the book of Matthew. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. It's not who hears my words and repeats them. It's not who hears my words and posts them on Instagram. It's not here, uh, he, he who hears my word and does nothing. He's saying, hey, if you want to be a friend to yourself, then take what I'm saying and look at the life I'm living and put it into practice. I guarantee you, do it and see what your life is in five years' time. And so to come full circle, we're going to kind of come back to Paul's uh, little chat here with the Corinthian church about their arguments and about their narratives and about their pretensions and have a look at how he closes this out. He says, we will be ready to punish. And all of us go, whoa, oh, yeah, we don't like that word. That's not a nice word. And it's difficult because it's written 2,000 years ago in a specific context, right? But this word punish really is about exercising justice and responding appropriately. So Paul is arguing to us, hey, if we're not careful about the thoughts that we have, the narratives that we're writing, we need to be ready and willing to respond appropriately to these things. And how does he say that we do that? He says that we are going to respond appropriately to every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Now, I don't know what kind of perspective you have on your own life, but I can tell you right now that it doesn't matter how difficult you or how much you try, you will never be able to be fully obedient to anything. It's simply not possible. And so what Paul is saying here, when your obedience is complete, is not actually anything to do with you completing a checklist. In fact, we're told elsewhere that in Jesus, his obedience is made complete to the Father. And so for you and for me today, our job in capturing our thoughts and capturing our narratives is not so that we can tick a box and say, look how good we are. It's so that we can look at Jesus and be overwhelmed by his obedience. Now, for some of us in the room, we're thinking, this is a little bit heavy. Can we bring back Gordon? He was much nicer. Also, when's Daniel back? That would be really good. But we can't let this get away from us. Because our narratives change the trajectory of our lives. And our narratives around some of the stuff that we don't want to deal with can really impact where we're going. 
And we have to acknowledge that what Paul is ultimately talking about here is the sin in our lives. And there's a kind of myth out there. It's commonly held, commonly believed. Sometimes I catch myself even believing this myself. And that's that sin makes you a bad person. But I got to clear up, guys. Sin does not make you bad. The reality is if we were to define what sin is, sin is simply missing the mark. It's falling short. And so if you can look at your life and you can look at all the times that you've not quite made it, you can realize very, very quickly that you are nothing but a very bad person. But that's not the truth of what God is saying to you. In fact, it's way worse than that. Sin doesn't make you bad. Sin makes you dead. Spiritually and physically dead. And these narratives that we're writing are contributing to this death. And where am I getting this from? It's from another letter from Paul. He says, for the wages of sin is death. Hey, if you want to see where ultimately all of these negative narratives and all these negative decisions and essentially not holding things up to the light of who Jesus is, where does that get you? It's going to earn you death. But at the very same time, Paul flips the script just like Jesus does. And he shows us, hey, it's not just that. In fact, if we take that and we flip it over, we see that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's nothing we have to do. It's nothing that we have to achieve. It's nothing we have to tick a box for. It is simply a gift. And you can see here that this changes everything because God wants to partner with you to rewrite the narrative that you are writing. I don't know what lies you have been told, but we need to be really clear that you right now in this building or watching online have been built with a purpose. Now that means something because it means your narrative that you are telling yourself and you are writing each and every day, that narrative has a purpose, which means that your narrative is important. And if you are not paying attention to the narratives that you're telling yourself, you are physically limiting yourself from where God could take you and how He could use you in this world and beyond. And so in light of all of this, I've got some questions for you. We're going to get really deep, right? Have you got any strongholds in your life today that need to be demolished? What are the arguments? What are the narratives? What are the prejudices that you need to say, hey, God, this thing is broken and I need you to redeem it? Maybe you're struggling to think, so let's ask some questions here. What's your narrative behind why you're not calling your brother? It's all his fault. He's the one. What's your narrative behind why you're not calling your parents? Is it because of the things that they did when you were younger? Oh, they did this, they did that, la, 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 nothing to do with me. What is your narrative behind why you drink so much and why you get aggravated when someone talks to you about it? What's your narrative behind why you're living with who you're living with? Why you're dating who you're dating? Why you want to file for divorce or why you already have? It's everything apart from me. It's nothing to do with me. Maybe the narrative question is not for you. Maybe what do you tell yourself about why you're not more generous? About why you're not more present? About why you cheat on your taxes? about why you despise a certain people group? What do you tell yourself about why you've given up on God or maybe even the church? 
Well, maybe we take all of those narratives and all of those things we're telling themselves and we bring them up and we weigh them up against who Jesus is and what He's done. I mean, let's just take this one statement from Jesus. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved you in this room today in Perth, Western Australia, that He bought you at a price. It tells us elsewhere that you are not your own. You were bought at a price and therefore honour God with your body. We're at the beginning of a brand new year and you and I have the opportunity to rewrite our narratives in light of all Jesus has done and all that He will do. Can you imagine, we've sung this song this morning, but can you imagine what our city would look like if our church community here in Cannington and Beldivis embraced all that God had, not just for us on a Sunday, not just for the people that we already know, but what would it look like in your family, in your workplace, in your state, in your city? Could you imagine what God can do if all of us walk in Monday to Saturday with open hands saying, God, rewrite my narrative. I think we see a different city. And so I want to challenge us all today to commit. We're going to commit to demolish every narrative that conflicts with the value system introduced by Jesus. And I got to tell you, this is not going to be easy. In fact, this is a lifelong pursuit. This means looking at the life of Jesus from now until the day that you breathe your last and looking at everything in your life and going, is this what Jesus looks like? And if not, I'm going to do all I can to ask the Holy Spirit to help me to destroy that thing. And so today's habit that we are going to try and lock into our daily lives is to pay attention to our Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more great resources and to keep yourself up to date, head to our website. Visit therocks.church.